This episode of the GabFest contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political GabFest for June 13th, 2019, the little ditty about Mitch and Elaine edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C., alone at a green felt table. But I am looking, I'm looking through the miracle of science all the way to New York, where I see John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes. Hello, John. Hello, David. And I almost saw Emily, but she was off mic there for a second. There's Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Never. Magazine. Never. I Yale would never be Law off School. mic. I can't imagine what you mean. Um, it's a summer. John, Let's forget about Yale Law School for a little while. John I, I, John is so well-dressed, and he, we had the conversation before the show about why he's well-dressed, even though he's not appearing on TV. He's not. He is on writing his book right now and so and he insufficiently answered it so i'm going to ask you one more time john in two sentences or less why on a random thursday when as far as i know you do not need to be on television are you so beautifully dressed well because i I like i like dressing well but more to the point uh i when you get up in the morning it you don't have to think about what you're going to wear you grab a shirt a tie that goes with it get in your suit you're out the door like all my other clothing options are uh, require thought. Don't require thought, and at any minute I could like have to go do something and or meet with somebody where I have to be. So, oh, okay. That so makes that's sense. that's anyway. So that's true. Plus, why not? You know, uh, the real reason though is the one I said off mic, which is when you're in the middle of writing a book and you're deep in the bowels of uh, your process. Everything seems up for grabs. All of the normal stability in life is removed from you and you are in a howling void. And so if you can have your self put together, uh, at least in terms of what you're wearing, it provides some tiny structure against the, uh, the, the terror of the abyss. That, that is probably the most important thing GAFS listeners are going to hear today. And it was in the first 30 seconds of the show. You can turn it off now. Totally unplanned. So you should turn it off right can now. Can I just say, turn it from off our now. standpoint, and how into the abyss. listeners, what we're viewing is David sitting at a green table with a bubble tea. It looks like you're, you're the most relaxed card dealer in Vegas I've ever seen. Because that <laughs> table with the green oh. felt looks like a card table. It's it's true. I wish we were playing a little rounders here. Can I just say On that I am today's... No, no, I have to add that I am the opposite of put together. I am a drowned rat because I just got caught in a downpour in New York and I'm going to be cold and wet all day in my clothes. Now, go ahead. We can start the show. Okay, now now, now listeners. On today's Gabfest, are Mitch McConnell and Elaine Chow the most corrupt couple in Washington, the most powerful couple in Washington? the most supportive and loving couple in Washington, we will discuss. Then, state governments are more partisan than they have ever been. Is that okay? Is there any way to moderate them? And then the addicting, radical nature of YouTube and other tech platforms, a topic we touched at at our special live show this past weekend. We're going to go deeper on it. How is the... The, na- the addicting nature of those platforms transforming the public square and public debate, and can that be controlled? Plus, we're going to have cocktail chatter. And a reminder, dear Canadian and other listeners, um, that on July 10th, a Wednesday, we're going to be in Toronto. We're going to be at Kerner Hall at the Telus Center for Performance and Learning, and there's still tickets available for that show. It is our first show in Canada, our first show outside the United States, and we're really excited to come visit you. I need some restaurant recommendations, some walking around Toronto recommendations, but mostly I need your 
butts in seats recommendations, <laughs> go to slate.com slash live and join us on Wednesday, July 10th in Toronto. So excited that we're doing that. I really, this is a, a huge highlight of the summer, our first international show. Secretary of Transportation Elaine Chow is married to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. And I learned an amazing fact, which, John, you probably already knew or remembered. This is not the first time that the Secretary of Transportation and the Senate Majority Leader have been married. Bob Dole and Elizabeth Elizabeth Dole. Dole was Transportation Secretary when Bob Dole was Majority Leader. But Chow and McConnell have a very potent partnership, a potent political partnership, a potent... uh, uh, they're very supportive of each other politically, and I assume uh, axorially as well, but now have come allegations of corruption in two forms. First, that Chow, as Transportation Secretary, is steering projects to Kentucky to help her husband, to help her husband's reelection campaign, and essentially favor Kentucky in Department of Transportation funding for for pork, pork barrel projects. And second, that Chow is using her own influence to help her family's shipping firm, her her family, American family of Chinese origin has a shipping firm called Foremost that has very close ties to the Chinese government. And she may have been using her connections to help smooth and lubricate relations with China to so that Foremost's business thrives. Emily, so we have the situation where a former McConnell staffer, a former Senate staffer named Todd Inman is now Elaine Chow's chief of staff at the transportation department. And he seems to be acting as a special intermediary, steering money to Kentucky. There's $78 million in grants, transportation grants that have gone to Kentucky during this period of uh, where where Chow's been transportation secretary. Yes. Is that a problem? It's like the swampiest, swampy story ever, right? Of these different agencies colluding, maybe colluding's not the right word, but it seems as if these connections are greasing projects in Kentucky. And- What I actually don't understand, I mean, maybe it makes perfect sense in Donald Trump's America, but McConnell's response to the coverage of this story in Politico, which broke the story, was to say, oh, ha ha, I should have gotten more projects. I have been talking to my wife about these projects, and I'm only upset that we only got five approved, as if, like, this was all so normal that uh, he should just wave it off to the point of... um, embracing it. And I that actually did surprise me, the utter lack of embarrassment and shame. But honestly, what is the point of being the Senate Majority Leader if you cannot get a square named after you, a highway named after you, $78 million channeled to your state? It seems pretty piddling uh, as things go. And and these are, I, I guess my, my, uh, yeah, my, lack of concern about this is these are at least projects that are serving the public. Now, they're not perhaps serving the public as well as another project that might have been chosen had the process been fair. Well, yes, that's totally true. They're not lining their own pockets here. Yeah, but they are lining up, lining McConnell's reelection pockets. And you want the government to be making decisions about spending your money in a way that seems fair and impartial and like the best projects go first. That seems like a perfectly legitimate 100% reasonable aspiration to have for our government. Right, exactly. So the you don't want your decisions about who gets money to be based on the main t- maintenance of power, which is to say keeping yeah. you in office. Um, but what you're saying essentially, David, is that there's always been a relationship between staying in office and doing things your voters like, which keep you in office, and delivering goods to your state. It's always gone through a system 
that is not 100% pure scientific evaluation of what needs money and what doesn't need money. The context of this, though, is important, which is that President Trump, and this has long since become almost a laugh line because of the number of lobbyists uh, the president has put into his administration after promising he wouldn't have any. But then secondly, the number of administration senior level, top level administration officials and cabinet officials who have had to resign or been, well, who've had to resign uh, based on either petty or less than a little more than petty ethics and sort of swampy behavior. So the context in which this is happening is from a president who came into office saying he was going to drain the swamp. I mean, the political report, the Times report actually didn't do anything for me, but the the Politico report was very carefully laid out. I mean, it it uh, it not only showed how Chow hired a special, you know, Todd Inman at first the job was to be basically special agent in charge of or a special intermediary for Kentucky. That was a privilege no other state enjoyed, according to Politico. And the specific project was one then that McConnell went and boasted about. Um, I thought the most telling quote in that political piece was from uh, a man named Al Mattingly, the chief executive of of the county in which Owensboro, which is where the project was uh, located, said, Todd, in this case, uh, referring to the Inman, um, probably smoothed the way. I mean, you know, used his influence. Everybody says that projects stand on their own merit, right? So if I've got 10 projects and they're all equal, where do you get where do you go to break the tie? So. Um, basically this special person broke the tie. I have literally no problem with this. I have, so, so David, for several reasons, concern, wait, can I say, can I, can I, can please. I finish my sentence? So my no problem with this are, this is not self. I, I think what Wilbur Ross has done, I think what president Trump and his family have done. I think what Ryan Zinke and Scott Pruitt have done in terms of self enrichment, using the government to, to enrich themselves is vile. I think the mal maldistribution of resources in the per, in the of government resources is a is a fairly mild sin which actually serves the public in general because it shows the public that actually political power is valuable and useful and and that seniority and the accumulation of political power is valuable and useful and that's a really good lesson a good thing for political it's good for a political system to indicate that if you work hard in politics and build up alliances and gain power, it will serve your constituents. And that teaches your constituents that politics isn't itself an effective and, and useful mechanism of, of action. That's number one. Number two is that this kind of favor trading and lubrication that, that this minor form of graft does, it allows favors to be swapped back and forth. And it's true. It's, it's somewhat problematic that it's just a Republican transportation secretary self-dealing with a Republican Senate majority leader. But if it also can work across the aisle, if it can also work to help distribute pork to Democrats, that's a pretty good thing to happen. And as we've as we've discussed in, in the past, and as Jonathan Rausch has written about so eloquently, the loss of pork barrel politics has made our political system much less flexible and made the capacity for compromise uh, diminished. But isn't- and, and so I like seeing evidence of it in the system. So normally... I'm on this bus with you, but I can't take it with you all the way to the depot. Here's why. So the process is supposed to have some mix of or does have maybe isn't supposed to. Yeah, is supposed to have some version of what you're talking about. People accumulate power to to serve their local interests and uh, the competition of power 
finds a rough balance of distributing uh, uh, services and goods and money. Fine. The marriage bed is not part of that deal. So what you're talking about is supposed to operate through the congressional system. You accumulate power. You have power on committees. And all of that stuff in the congressional system is a system that's thought through so that you have this thing which has the potential to go to get really skeezy where you have lobbyists and campaign donations and where it can go wrong and where distribution can happen not based on a rough merit but on total maintenance of power. You have a system through which it goes and it's relatively transparent or tries to be and there's checks and balances at some level. In this case, when it's basically between a married couple, all of that stuff's not taking place. So your ends are are maybe defensible, but the means in this case is not through the system that is designed to handle a normal distribution of resources. Yeah, I second that. I also think the context matters. It is true that $78 million is a small amount, but when the defense of this kind of, I would say, corruption is, oh, well, it's just like the small change under the sofa. Well, first of all, I always have trouble understanding how that's really true about $78 million, which sounds like a lot of money to me. But also then how do we prevent that from becoming a much larger sum of money? And the other part about context, I mean, this is an administration in which corporate lobbyists are at the head now of the EPA the Defense Department, the the Department of Interior, and the Department of Health and Human Services. Like, this is the opposite of drain the swamp. And so when you have McConnell refusing to show any kind of shame that he's involved in this kind of, not self-dealing, I guess so, but like Kentucky dealing for his own electoral benefit, that just seems to add to this collapse of norms. And I know that, like, we know this is happening, and sometimes we tend to kind of laugh it off because it's so familiar, but we don't know what the medium to long-term consequences of eroding these norms is. I Well, okay. A couple of other points about this. One is, contra you, John, I actually found the Times report about Chow and her family somewhat more disturbing because that is a case where she, through a series of, not not that bad, but still, still unseemly actions, did things which, which seemed to help her to advantage her family in its relationship we, with China and to to position which of those actions did you find most unseemly um i mean she she tried to bring her family with her on a trade mission to china to give them special right. contact she didn't actually bring them she would allow her dad apparently to do interviews and discussions with chinese media under the aegis of the transportation department it also seems to be more reciprocal which is that the chinese government has made specific outreach efforts to her as one of the most powerful chinese american politicians in america to just be in touch with her connect with her and ensure that there was a good lines of communication, which, you know, and she just kept those lines of communication open. There's nothing wrong with her doing that. But it it turned out to then benefit her family shipping firm. But see, I found it more tenuous than that. So what I thought was useful about the Politico piece is it said, here was a relationship that existed with this guy from Kentucky. And here's a project that went to the specific place this guy was from. And her husband is from Kentucky. It was all, it kind of was quid pro quo in the in yeah. the, in the times 100 percent times piece it was like some of those meetings took place back in 2008 one of the one of the pieces yeah. of data was back in 2000 and the underlying the thing i found fuzzy was okay what's what's the claim here that she's helping the chinese against americans interests because 
or that she is using her position to leverage inside the Trump administration because China's not getting the best. It's getting the fuzzy end of the lollipop in terms of, of treatment by the Trump administration at the moment. But so I what, thought it was about self-dealing for her own yeah, family. Yeah. Well, but uh, but I don't. It seems like see, I didn't I didn't find that connection that strong. I mean, in other words, she was in her period between government she went and was kind of a part of the company even though she said she wasn't she well, went on trips good. and all the that no isn't good. no 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 that's not good but i'm saying in terms of proving the case that it helps her government it helped it helps, I, her, company. I, it helps her, her her parents company which has been operating for you know since the 60s i didn't see anything where she did something and then the company which has a long established relationship in china had any new benefit yeah. ha- uh, accrue to it secondly the other thing that was kind of glanced at but wasn't brought home to me was that because she's overseas u.s maritime interests it said well there were some cuts proposed in u.s maritime uh funding and it seemed to be the suggestion was because she cared only about u.s interests who do close business with china she's not tending american interests in the in the maritime industry but that seemed unproved so i it felt like it was a lot of tying of things together without a real ultimate claim. It seemed like the biggest claim. Well, Go ahead. No, I, I agree that there wasn't a huge uh, smoking gun there. It's more, The reason I found that story more deplorable is just that it was about self-dealing. I had, I had the conclusion Emily drew, which is that this is about her doing things which ultimately would benefit her family and make them rich. Whereas the work that she's doing with her husband to benefit Kentucky is not – you can say it is a mal – distribution of government resources, which should have been spent in another way, but it is not directly to benefit them financially, it, it, well, to benefit their yeah, re-election, also, which is what, David, we have poli- a limited, that's what politicians do, is they benefit their re-election. Yes, but we have a limited amount of resources, obviously, as taxpayers, and you want to imagine that your state and region is getting what it should get based on some objective set of criteria, not based on whether you know, your senator is married to the secretary of transportation. Like what if it's a shit project? Well, let me put it this way. Let me put it this, let me put it this way. Is a system where that was truly fair, where people, where government allocation was really made based on, on policy needs that were well-determined, well-thought-out, well-argued and uh, conclusion and, you know, based on conclusions that that the public agreed with, would be better. That was a really fair system. Absent that system, which I don't think we're anywhere near having, I think a system where politicians, who are the the allocators of that revenue, take some portion of that revenue, redistribute it to themselves or to the benefit of their particular constituents, in order to show that they have power, in order to show they have political influence, in order to be able to give a favor to somebody who can then return a favor later, in order to you know maintain party order. That doesn't seem bad. Well, but don't you think that, that seems happens okay. all the time? Like, do we really need to encourage? No, it? I don't think. I, well, I don't think it happens nearly. Well, we don't. don't we certainly don't need true. to encourage. I think you could argue, the one place you don't need to encourage it is in the office of the majority leader, whether it's Harry Reid or Mitch McConnell. Especially That's, when the tie is his wife. Well, the situation in Congress, you would hear Democrats and Republicans complain, uh, is that 
both Reed and McConnell have created a situation where all the old powers of Congress, which were more evenly distributed through committee chairmen and even through individual members, have been just destroyed. And that the majority leaders for the larger political goals of the party and the presidency and all of that schedule, keep a, an iron grip on the schedule and make it so that they basically don't vote. So they don't get a chance to do their jobs, to trade the things they need. And so that if you were signing up for your argument, the, what, the last place you would go to make sure that the greasing uh, would take place would be in the majority leader's office because the majority leader already has extraordinary power. Uh, and, and so it doesn't need more. Um, all right. One last question here about this. Is it better or worse? Is it more or less corrupt because they are married? So if let's imagine that this, this is John, that you're the Senate majority leader, and Emily, you're the— you're the uh, Emily and Chow in the, the story. Secretary of Transportation. Cool. You guys are friends, and you guys, but you guys are close friends. Would it be? Is it? Is is the fact that that they're that they're rubbing each other's backs uh, more excusable because they're married, or less excusable because they're married? So is rubbing each like other's if, backs worse than just scratching each other's back? You yeah. scratch your I mean, back. I is scratch it, is mine. It the, the favor you could because people do favors for longtime friends sure. and longtime political chums in the same way. I think that if you are Elaine Chao in this situation, the benefit to you of having your husband continue to get reelected at the Senate is higher than the sort of nice basking in the glow of having your friend reelected. So I think this is worse. I don't really think it matters one way or the other, except that it, it, is, it does feel one step further removed from the system you were describing, that this distribution of resources happens through this kind of personal relationship as opposed to some other kind of relationship. It does feel further away from the way things are supposed to work than if they were just pals. Slate Plus members receive bonus segments on the GabFest, other Slate podcasts. We are going to have a fascinating, well, we haven't had it yet, but I'm predicting a fascinating discussion about the American system of government, which we are going to fix, we're going to save, we're going to secure its next 250 years. In about seven minutes, ah! just seven minutes of discussion on Slate Plus, we're going to do that. It's going to be amazing. I got a plan. So go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today so you can listen to that discussion. This episode of the GabFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame and i hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos but it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life and they have a great deal for mother's day gapfest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting auraframes.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best selling frame that's a u r a frames.com Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. There is only one divided state legislature left in the United States. That is in Minnesota, where Republicans 
cling to the state Senate, having lost the state House. In most states, there are clear majorities controlling both chambers and also the governor's office. Uh, In most of those states, too, Republicans control those majorities, but plenty of them are controlled by Democrats. Uh, There are also some states where, where one party controls the legislatures and the other party does control the governor's office. But in general, if you look at state governments, they have become more partisan than they've ever been and in more partisan really in one direction. So, John, how has this happened? What explains it? And, and are we stuck with it? Huh. Well. Emily, yeah. how has this happened? What <laughs> yeah, go ahead. It? We stuck with. Well, what's happened is that states have polarized. There are sort of competing explanations for that. One that I think is so interesting is that the rise of inequality has actually contributed to this because Republicans are able to win seats that moderate Democrats used to hold in state legislatures. And meanwhile, when Democrats hold seats, more liberal Democrats get into office. And so that's part of what's going on. Another part of the explanation that we read about, and I'm sorry, I've forgotten who to credit this article to, but was the idea that the demise of local news has contributed, that when voters can't see, and David, this relates to your sort of theory of government, I think, that when voters can't see exactly um, what is happening, they can't see the sausage being made up close, then they assume that the party leadership is the way to go. Or actually then, I'm sorry, the representatives assume they can just follow the party leadership because they're not as tied in and sort of accountable to their constituents. And that leads them in a more polarized direction as well. So that's the how we got here. Really query whether this is a bad thing. I mean, you know, part of having a system of government somewhere in the United States should be to overcome gridlock and like get stuff done. And if you control all the organs of state government, you get to pass laws and change policy. And if the people of your state don't like the laws that you've passed, they can vote you out. It like heightens the contradiction. Now, I will say that I do not feel this way about actually changing the levers of power in government so that you can't get voted out, right? So I don't approve of what, you know, the Republicans have done in Wisconsin Wisconsin. and North Carolina, where you then, like, strip power, make the minority um, essentially just, you know, diminish democracy. Like, I do not mean to be approving of that. But the notion that you get into power in Alabama and you pass a really strict abortion law or you, what was that other, like, crazy thing they did? Castration for some sex? Yeah, chemical castration for... Paroled sex offenders. So I think that is terrible. But I also think like it makes it clear what's at stake in Alabama. And similarly in Illinois, if the Democrats are doing things that the electorate thinks are off the charts, they can vote them out of office. But at least like some things happen. But the but the argument would be that part of the answer to the original question is that this system works because of the because of changing of district lines and things people do once they're in power to keep themselves and their party in power, which then makes it harder for the voters to throw them out. Yes, um, yes. My theory, my theory is premised on the notion that it is actually possible for a majority of voters to right. change the government if they don't like it. If right. that goes away, then, like, I'm out. And I think the things that, that make that hard to go away are, one, uh, setting the rules up so that you keep incumbents getting reelected and that's both by the districts the way they're drawn but then it's also just by the money the process you can raise more money if you're an incumbent so the benefits that accrue to incumbents um but i think also 
the version of democracy you're talking about, it feels like the answer to this is the nationalization has come to the local level, which is the problems we have in the national conversation are that there is no one set of common facts. Gatekeepers at the national level, whether it's politicians or the news media, have been uh, diminished in stature, so they can't call balls and strikes in the way they used to be able to. So information that voters would need to gather to vote somebody in or out is completely a free-for-all. It's a circus in which you can't um, agree upon a set of facts and come to a common conclusion. You also have party organizations, Republicans, really uh, pushed for this and have for the last 20 years to build power at the local level. And they did it using what we've seen at the national level, which is hot-button red meat issues through the use of micro-targeting to find somebody and say, look, what you need to be focused on for the next seven months until the election is how and then fill in the blank, whatever the thing is that gets them most exercised, whether it's Second Amendment rights or abortion or marijuana legalization. And you keep being fed a constant diet of emotional information to sway your vote to one party or another. So it's not actually the election, if they ever were done this way, and there's debate. The election is not an adjudication of public ideas where, you know, the best man wins or the best woman wins and her argument. And that all of those techniques, which are meant to keep us constantly polarized, and we're polarizing ourselves through the people we choose to live next to and the cultural choices we make. So we're no longer in contact with other people, which means our votes and our voting process is much more siloed and polarized. So I think all of those things are happening uh, at the local level as they are at the national level. Right. I would go back just, just to align myself with your point, Emily, which this is not the same crisis, though, that we have at the national level, because at the national level, what we have is is effectively a 50-50 government and minority veto power over a lot of stuff uh, and paralysis because the legislature is not capable of acting, whereas at the state level, we have legislatures which are very much capable of acting and governors who are eager to act with them. And so we're getting ton of activity. And I tend to agree with you, Emily, that that getting stuff done, even if it's majoritarian bullying, that getting stuff done is better than not getting stuff done because there is at least the public has a chance to experience it and to respond. And and that that there that there are stakes in co- Congress is a huge amount of discussion and very little done. And in these state legislatures, there's a, not that much discussion, but a lot done. And then the citizens have a chance if the system has not been tilted too badly, a chance to actually vote on it. I, what I wonder is, is get, given, though, that you both identified this problem, which is that if you can adjust the laws so that you don't ever have to lose power, that if you can make yourself a permanent majority, both because the demographics favor you and because you change the, the rules so that you're, you're locked in, what hope is there? Like, what forces of possible moderation and resistance and, and compromise can there be in states where where there's a permanent majority and it's set the rules so that it will always be a permanent majority. That reminds me of kind of like what it used to be like in communist countries where there basically it's one party. There's a party and they, that's who decides everything. Yeah, I mean, I find this the most discouraging, scary trend in American democracy right now, this idea that you're having this entrenchment of minority power. Um, and I do not mean the word minority and the way it's associated with people of color. I mean, political minority or majority power. But also it's but sorry to sorry to interrupt. Okay. You, Emily. I'm just but we're talking about majority well, power majority too. power that then like, is used to make sure that when you're the minority, you the same right. people stay in office and it's really hard to get you out. 
it just seems deeply problematic to me. So, and then what you, the answer to that is if it really gets imbalanced, you have some kind of revolution. Like you have a revolt and people stand up and they fix this. Except that, you know, you mentioned the example of communism. We have a domestic example, which is that for many years in this country, before one person, one vote came down from the Supreme Court in the 1960s in the case Baker versus Carr, we had a system of incredibly unequal representation where people literally like you had hundreds of people who had a representative in small towns in my state of Connecticut. And you had tens of thousands who had one representative in cities. And it really lasted for a long time in this way that I find really dismaying because it suggests that people, there's a disconnect. Like people don't quite see the degree to which they are not fairly allowed to have expressed their political preference and small amount of power in their system and they will put up with it for a really long time and their resentments will be able to be sort of channeled in other directions, usually against other people of their class in a way that is like really dismaying to me. I find that history, um, I don't know what to do with that. She speaks the truth. I think the only other thing other than revolution um so if you deny people their rights and set up a system that makes them feel permanently shut out of the process, they respond through revo- through revolution or through, you know, dangerous and extreme acts. The other is that it's somehow and, and I'm trying to think of how this would work at the at the local level. I mean, at the national level, you have, you know, a massive recession or uh, th- that the the ever encroaching corruptibility of power, that it's very hard to retain control of these institutions for a long time without becoming corrupt and that we saw this with democrats in the house that got bounced out in 1994 um after 40 years of rule um in part because people got fed up with the fact that democrats were you know treating their power wantonly or irresponsibly so you can have revolutions at the ballot box but i i I, i'm that's the edge of my understanding because i i haven't thought through at the local level the constraints that make that harder to do i because I, I know what they are can guess at what they would be at the national level but i'm not sure at the local level where there might not be different ones i wonder this is not a really remedy for the political problem but i guess i would i would implore if there are any partisan state legislators and and uh and extreme governors listening to the gabfest as i'm sure there are many <laughs> Uh, All of them, really. (laughs) Even if you choose not to fix the political system, which allows you to entrench power, I I think a lot of what makes people have faith in government and faith in their local government and and state government is a sense that they that the government is basically accountable, that it follows rules, that it's efficient, that it's a fair. The government will will act effectively and pretty fairly, and not be grotesque. I mean, the the overall laws may be tilted in a direction, but that basically, you know, when you are going to small claims court, the small claims court will work. And if you are, uh, you know, when you call the police, the police will come no matter who you are. And so I would just say, like, like, please, if you're going to run your hyperpartisan state, at least try to have services allocated in totally fair or in fair and efficient ways pick up the garbage and yeah just just don't just don't treat citizens differently depending on who they are politically and that at least that will keep 
uh, it will keep some level of faith in the system so that maybe one day we can, when we do get around to fixing the politics piece of it, people have not completely abandoned the belief that government is an effective actor. Just one other final small point, which is that I like those states where you have a uh, governor on one side and legislature on the mm-hmm. other. I think Me those too. are that's what we need. Maryland has that. Massachusetts has What's that. What's the virtue um, of that? North Carolina, I think, has that. Just there's like some uh, balance. Well, forced compromise by a system. Some of balance and, government. and it yeah. leads you back to this middle that most people are basically content with. What about when you need more dramatic change? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't generally believe in needing right, more you dramatic, don't like dramatic that, change. So. That's that's a bad system. <laughs> <laughs> Many Americans, and actually people around the world, are concerned about the addicting and radicalizing impact that technology and technology algorithms are having on our lives. I think we we are seeing politics polluted by conspiracy theories from places like QAnon. Uh, we have discourse coarsened and made grotesque by hate speech mongers on YouTube and people who are getting radical, especially young white men, you're getting radicalized by rabbit hole conspiracy theories that are fed to them by the platforms, again, especially by YouTube. Um, so we're being fed a, a diet of poison and muck and lies by platforms which are themselves m- designed essentially to addict us, designed to compel engagement. And by engagement, they right. mean more and more time spent on it. Even when engagement means showing people or telling people more and more outlandish and more and more vile things, making us worse people but and more worked up people, uh, but yeah, we're more engaged with the, that technology, more angry and more susceptible to lies. It's all it all seems bad. So, what do we do with that? Well, uh, John, uh, so I solve I that problem. Know. I'm going to take Please. a little break. Not, you solve that. I'm not sure how to to solve it, but I, I'd like to spend one more beat on um, just what this is exactly doing to us. So the the both investigations by the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal found that with YouTube that the what happens is you go to search for something relatively benign and that the algorithm that suggests uh, other content to you gets increasingly more severe and uh, on the extremes of whatever your initial query was. And this is because, to your point, David, that it's a, it's a model built on engagement and the people who are longest engaged, spend the most time with the videos, click the most, are the ones that then shape what other people are offered. In the political context in which this happens, um, a former YouTube programmer uh, named Guillaume Chaslot, I have no idea if I'm butchering that name, did a study after the 2016 election and found that when you searched for Donald Trump, the, the recommended other videos were generally pro-Trump. When you search for Hillary Clinton, generally what you got in your responses were all anti-Clinton. This was because the engagement of Trump-watching YouTubers was influencing anybody who might come who was, uh, you know, honestly trying to figure out which candidate they might be interested in or looking for information. So that's the one political way in which it can be a problem. The second way is that it basically feeds this notion built on Uh, And Tim Wu wrote a book about this called The Attention Merchants, built on this idea that basically they're doing whatever they can to maximize attention for you. And also in maximizing the attention, allow you to take your own path and essentially continue self-gratification, which is pleasing things that confirm your existing views um, or that excite your imagination and your emotions, which is pleasing for some people and why they do this. And that all of these this rabbit holing is to keep you online 
uh, longer. Well, that, of course, distracts us just at a basic level. But it also overwhelmingly uh, pollutes the general sturdiness of facts and or traditional institutions that have tried their best to keep the facts kind of in the middle of the table. It makes it very hard to think that we can ever have a, a, a public debate about something that isn't just basically hugely corrupted. So I just want to make the point that the problem is not the algorithms. Like the algorithms are a tool. They are certainly part of what is going wrong. But the problem is that these platforms are driven by profit-seeking motives. And they have one goal, which is to get you to spend more time and to make more money. And it turns out that the best way to do that is to often lead people down a path that is like bad for their brains. And We don't have a good way of decoupling those two things because these are for-profit companies and we are terrified for some good reasons about trying to regulate their efforts to regulate speech. But to the extent that the algorithms are designed to further the the purposes you just outlined, they are the problem. I mean, they... they, because they're the tool. That totally, allows them but you to could that. have a good algorithm well, or a that's... bad algorithm. The reason the algorithms are doing nefarious yes. things is that the underlying motivation, Correct. the way they're being programmed, right. is driven by making money. And making money in this situation turns out to have like really problematic effects. Wait, but sorry, Emily. I just so I understand it. What you're saying is, but but doesn't that suggest that inevitably? Insofar as we are trying to maximize, insofar as any of these platforms is trying to maximize engagement uh, and thus maximize revenue, it will end up being a charnel house <laughs> because human nature is terrible. Yes. Well, but if but there are lots of contexts in which when we face that problem with corporations, we then rein them in, right? And we regulate them and we set rules so that like where well yeah, we have tell, like work, remember how we have like worker safety um, health codes, like all the things we do so that corporations can't like child labor laws. Like there are all kinds of limits we put on the market so that the market is not just this like completely unchecked, unfettered force that can race to the bottom. And in this this context of these technology platforms, we have had very, very little regulation, right? And we did that on purpose, and especially in the United States. We are trying to build this internet. We are trying to make sure that these companies were allowed to innovate without worrying about having to take down lots of problematic speech, right? Like we didn't want them to play that role, except, oh, by the way, we do have them take down things are copyrighted. But in in creating that world, like we now have this relatively unregulated, incredibly huge um, operation going on, these sets of platforms. And I just got to say, like you, Google owns YouTube. And so part of the story, too, is that when you I didn't even realize this, but when you Google videos, it's almost always a YouTube link that comes up. And so that's another way in which the huge scale and uh, effective like vertical monopoly quality of these companies is affecting our viewing habits. The question is whether they have a different response, whether they have an, a responsibility that goes beyond maximizing profit. Yes. And that, and that goes back to your point that answers David's original question, which is how do you fix this, which is some people call for algorithm transparency. In other words, publish how your algorithm is, is giving me suggestions so that we can at least know whether it's doing it to maximize engagement or has some other 
Maybe then we more. all have to pay really attention. Sure, that's that's a huge problem, <laughs> and we obviously don't pay attention uh, to lots and lots of things. And obviously, it will be in the country company's interest to make the algorithm explanation as confusing as possible to keep the attention low to that. And we also know that what's true in private is true in public. Which is in private to do your best work, you need to be focused and engaged for uh, long periods of time where you have a state of flow and not an eruption. Well, that's not totally uh, unanalogous to the public square where you need hard focused work to solve our biggest problems and collective work not work where we're all atomized and spread all over the place because we're chasing a rabbit hole about whether saturn is really made of gouda cheese when we all know that it's camembert but the the question the question is whether um you could through regulation or social pressure change the algorithm so that it served up what so I'm searching for, you know, climate change. And and what would the most sort of benevolent algorithm serve me? But I don't know. Or right. maybe you have rules that actually it doesn't keep just automatically loading the next video, right? You could also limit it that way. I'm not sure what the answer is. What? I think the problem is like a really serious problem because yeah. regulating speech is very hard to do. And so there were good reasons why in the United States, we've been so reluctant to do that. It's just that now we've created this behemoth that is having all these throw-off effects and, like, it is past time. And if we don't regulate the speech, then we have given the companies even more power because they're the ones choosing and making exactly the... Um, decisions you're talking about and we know that they don't do it well of course they don't do it well it's not in their interest and they are for profit companies they do not have like any sort of public good in their hearts that's not what they were designed to to do so i agree with you emily actually the part or i think where you were going a little bit in response to john's john asking is can you have the the nice algorithm i actually think it is uh it's more fundamental it's that that these platforms intrinsically create addiction. They create laziness and receptivity, physical inaction, short attention spans, and that just the nature of them is the, is itself damaging. And so you could certainly you can ameliorate, you can do you can do little things on the margins to make it more positive and and watch videos of Susan Boyle, which is what I watch on YouTube. Um, <laughs> but it doesn't fix the fundamental problem with it i guess but now you one sound question the way people have, sound signed about tv and radio right like yeah, moral wait, panic I, here's okay, but here's what here's a here's my question actually yeah well i do have a moral panic about yeah. it uh here's my question which is can you guys and, and i haven't this is a question i've just popped into my head so i haven't given it any thought so maybe we'll Uh-oh. all think about it can you <laughs> i think thought that was the whole point of our show <laughs> ideas that uh, can you think of any haven't given any thought slogan can you think of can you think of any example of one of these technologies, whether it be a platform, whether it be a company, whether it be some a habit that we have uh, that developed because in this internet age, which it goes in the other direction, which cuts in the other direction, which creates connection, yes, yes. human connection, warmth, uh, 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 comedy, community, um, and and depth hmm. that people That's use the and that works, or the personal. I mean, what about when you have like a nice Slack channel at work or like a good community listserv that actually like works in a good way? I mean, those things exist. Slack channels. Slack channels. I don't have any Slack channels. No, Slack channels are the base. Slack channels are. No, they were 
created by the Russian. No, this, they are. They are. <laughs> I, not Slack channels are very dangerous. Right, and, forget that. And, no good community listservs out there. Uh, good community listservs are good. And by the way, I mean the the larger benefit of. I mean, there were. I don't know whether these things still. Well, one thing is true. We know that people from marginalized in uh, from marginalized communities or who have who feel like they are all alone in the world can find people of like minds and like interests who where it in the most benevolent ways creates a community where you thought that there was no community and where you are all alone. Um, so that has been one beneficial. Right. Yep. The voices of the marginalized in the political context that have led to revolutions and that were part of, you know, the Arab Spring were great for a while until the autocrats and authoritarians learned that actually you can use all of this information better to create false information. And the, I mean, the psychological studies, which have been around since the 70s, on the power of information that lodges in your brain, once something lodges in your brain, even when you're told that it is totally wrong, the fact that the false thing took residence first makes it very hard, the illusory truth effect it's called, to kick it out of your brain. And that while there is an upper boundary of plausibility, you know, that upper boundary of implausibility is is very hard to reach. I mean, one thing that this makes me think about is we've gone from the celebration of the connecting over the Internet that was part of the Arab Spring to a situation where countries during elections or right before them shut down the Internet so that lies and disinformation will not just absolutely destroy their efforts at democracy. Right. That was... Yes, put a, like put that, that on the refrigerator. That was well said. When you open that refrigerator and look in and see a chilling bottle of wine, a nice beer, um, I'm not sure what liquor one keeps in the fridge, but maybe you keep liquor in the fridge. Uh, what will you then chatter about once you've turned that, that alcohol into a drink for yourself? Emily. I... I'm really interested in a story that just came out in Wire or maybe is just about to come out by Christine Biederman. I hope I'm saying her name right. It's about the prosecution of Backpage. And it I'm not sure what I think about this, honestly. I really am not sure. But this is uh, the government's decision to prosecute these two men who owned Backpage for a long Lacey time. And Larkin. Lacey and Larkin. Lacey and Larkin. Um, they... They were in my world for a while. Oh, really? Oh, because of City Paper. Uh, interesting. Yeah, I mean they were they were connected. To, yeah, they were the big guns in that industry. Yeah, anyway, and, sorry, and I interrupted. You. In Forgive my me. view, kind of destroyed parts of it. But in any case, along the way, they bought the Village Voice. They were the big Alt Wheatley folks, and one of their main money making activities was Backpage. And so the bad part of Backpage is that there was trafficking going on in Backpage to some degree, but there was also a lot of consensual sex work advertising, which sex workers found useful as a way of vetting people and also just like selling consensual sex work. And the most interesting thing to me is the government in prosecuting Lacey and Larkin is arguing that their efforts to clean up the site actually just hid all the really bad nefarious things that were going on. So what they, as Backpage was coming under fire, the people actually, you know, dealing with these ads coming in were trying to take out certain like terrible words like Lolita. They were trying to make it a place where there weren't these trafficking, dangerous, horrible signals going on. And then the government came along and said, basically, look, we've just sanitized this marketplace and it still is really evil. So I just, 
I don't know what to think about that. It's all really interesting. Anyway, you should read Christine's piece in Wired. It's very thought-provoking. That's my chatter. John, what's your chatter? My chatter is... Um... <laughs> I felt at a, at a distance of 250 miles that John sort of removed a large maybe dusty volume and opened it to page 368 and was preparing. <laughs> there was this, I think this could be a long one. No, 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 no. Well, it it's, be a long it's, one? it's long, but not in, it's long only, uh, <laughs> it's long in a more enjoyable way than my normal chatters. What? I think, I hope. <laughs> anyway, this is something that um, uh, Meredith Frost posted on, on Twitter. She's, uh, she's great to follow. She always has uh, fab- fascinating little quirky things like this. This is Chuck Jones's rules for writing the Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote cartoons. So, this is the best. Awesome. This was going to be our listener chatter. Oh, this was, was going to be the listener oh. chatter. Bring I it. Wanna yeah, I want to hear. Yeah, I don't go ahead. Know. No, bring it. Rule number one. Bring it. It's so great. Okay, now that we've ruined expectations. Anyway, rule number one the Roadrunner cannot harm the coyote except by going beep, beep. Rule number two, no outside force can harm the coyote, only his own ineptitude or the failure of the Acme products. Rule number three, the coyote could stop any time if he were not a fanatic. Repeat, a fanatic is one who redoubles his effort when he has forgotten his aim. That's a quote from George Santayana. Rule number four, no dialogue ever except beep beep. Rule number five, the roadrunner must stay on the road. Otherwise, logically, he would not be called roadrunner. Rule six, all action must be confined to the natural environment of the two characters, the Southwest American desert. Rule number seven, all materials, tools, weapons, or mechanical conveniences must be obtained from the Acme Corporation. (laughs) Rule number eight, whenever possible, make gravity the coyote's greatest enemy. Rule number nine, the coyote is always more humiliated than harmed by his failures. So I just want to say that is why I hate this show so much. I never understood this cartoon ever. It just was like an exercise in dismay and horror and upset for the poor coyote. It was incredibly boring. The Roadrunner is totally smug. And the acne part of it's weird. And, like, of course it was constrained in precisely these ways. Wait. I found it mystifying as a kid why they would stop Bugs Bunny to show us the Roadrunner and the Coyote. Wait, j- wait, John, did you skip? The- I have a rule number 10 on this Oh, my list. God. Do no, I don't. It doesn't. Per Emily, what Emily said, rule number 10, the audience's sympathy must remain with the Coyote. But then why do you want to watch it? It's excruciating. I just, excruciating and boring. Do you guys like that show? I hated that show as a kid. Yep. <laughs> you did? Oh, no. Well, yeah. I, I liked it um, in the way I like some musicians, which is one of their songs is fantastic. A whole album which of them. Which was fantastic. There well, was no fantastic. There is no, no. no like, er, er, Roadrunner. You, they're all totally interchangeable and the same. Well, oh. I, you're you're oh, come familiar. On. You have like a favorite oh, Roadrunner skit? That's bullshit. You the do not. F- I mean, I can't recall. I do remember one where the Roadrunner is at a computer. Same. He's at a computer doing no. something at a computer. No I remember that one being highlight. so great. How is he at the computer? Computer takes him off in the, the American South. There is no computer. No, no, sorry. The coyote oh, yeah. computer. Yeah. Ordering something online. online Like I didn't like Tom and Jerry, but I hated the Roadrunner. Huh. Uh, I loved Bugs Bunny. I just like if we, uh, I, I just uh, I, I just like these these rules feel very comforting to me, uh, and I think that they should be taken outside of the cartoon context and somehow applied to our daily lives.
All right, my chatter. I have two, one of which needs your help, listeners. So listen for that second one. Um, my first one is just to point you to a, the, my favorite thing that I read this week, which is in the New York Times. And it is the story of Agatha Christie's disappearance. Oh, yeah. I tried to follow so that link a, you posted and my phone wasn't working. I'm so glad you reminded me. So on a December night in 1926, Agatha Christie already maybe not the most famous mystery writer in the world, but one of the most famous mystery writers in the world, vanished. She disappeared. Her car was found abandoned in a lonely place. There was a search party that totaled 15,000 people that went looking for her, and they found not a trace of her. And then she turned up 11 days later at a spa registered under a different name. In fact, the name of a young woman who was a friend of her husband's. And, you know, the public attention waned. And what happened? So the New York Times this week chronicles her disappearance, basically using contemporaneous newspaper accounts. The, the story is told by looking at newspaper stories of the time. It is sublime. It is so much fun. It's going to be a movie. It's going to be a miniseries. It's, I can't believe I never heard this story before. It's great. Awesome. It's, you know, the mystery isn't that amazing, but it's, it's just so much fun. I strongly recommend it. Second thing is I need uh, some advice from or some recommendation from some people probably in Washington, D.C., which is that I find myself with um, unexpectedly with a little bit of free time in the coming few months. And I am looking for a useful and highly physical way to spend some time. Like I, So I, I've gotten out of the habit of volunteering. I've gotten out of the habit of doing sort of doing things that aren't the things that I've been doing. And I have this yen for it. So if you are somebody who has a farm that needs someone to harvest on it or a you need someone to knead dough for you or, or carry things for old ladies. I am looking for something with some human connection, maybe not too much, but that's very physical. I'm not trying to make money. So I, I realize it's a strange request, but I was like, who better would know this than GabFest listeners? So if you, dear GabFest listener, are in Washington, you're like, oh, Plot should do that. <laughs> uh, let me know. It's like take David Plot out for a day for or a week. Yeah, it's like yeah, no, but it's basically I like I would like to be, you know, I'd like to carry things or lift things or just like sweat a lot. That would be great. E- email me at uh at uh david at atlasobscura.com or or just, you know, send something to tweet us, tweet at us at, at slate gabfest. Our listener chatter actually so it's we have better news, which is that so that listener chatter John sort of took the listener chatter, but in fact, the listener chatter I had intended because it was sent by somebody who seemed to have been engaging with John around the subject, which is Ben Ben Hopkins at, at Ben Hopkins Music, is related to what John said. So we, as you know, we've been collecting listener chatters, your suggestions, you've been sending them to us at, at Slate Gabfest on Twitter. Um, and so there's the Roadrunner rules, but this Ben Hopkins pointed us to the cartoon laws of physics. Yes. Oh. Which are very similar. Did you look at those, I did, John? I did not, but it is. Um, I bookmarked yeah. it or I yeah. saved it to look at later. Yeah. Everyone so, falls so off a cliff always, but never dies. Yeah. So I'll read a couple of them. Yeah. So any number one, any body suspended in space will remain in space until made aware of its situation. <laughs> so the, the, another one is any body passing through solid matter will leave a perforation conforming to its perimeter, <laughs> also called the silhouette of passage. That's awesome. Um, the time required for an object to fall 20 sco- stories is greater than or equal to the time it takes for whoever knocked it off the ledge to spiral down 20 f- flights to attempt to capture it unbroken. <laughs> Certain bodies can pass through solid walls painted to resemble tunnel entrances. Others cannot. <laughs> Everything falls faster than an anvil. Um, anyway, it's great. 
we'll send put a link to it up. It's very much in the spirit of what of John's uh, Coyote versus Roadrunner. So that is our show for today. We are produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. June Thomas is the managing producer of Slate Audio. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Audio. Danielle Hewitt engineered today and Alan Pang engineered in New York at CBS. Thanks to CBS for the studio. That's nice of you, CBS. Follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest. Remember to come to our show in Toronto. Go to slate.com slash live to get tickets to our July 10th show in Toronto. We'd love to see you there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? What's going on? You get a lot of us this week because we had that whole show in the Slate Plus feed. Also, I feel like we've talked Jones, endlessly today. Today? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's not really? true. You know, I was kind of dreading today's show, and I thought it was really interesting. I liked that third convert topic that you guys framed. I thought the Chow McConnell thing was really interesting, and I thought the state partisanship thing. I'm not I, I, was, I thought it was I not going to be a good show. I just feel like it was long, but and yeah, I, good. And it was good. Um, also, I feel like John... Maybe you've, I don't know, I missed you. And <laughs> yeah. these were all very Dickersonian yeah, topics that were really, oh, well, that's very really, sweet. you guys are the best. John friendly. Uh, you know, and by the way, well, since we're in the Slate Plus uh, cocoon of family, it is one of the sustaining joys, not just doing this show, but the number of people who listen and who are like, come up and say, like, I love the show. And it is, they are everywhere, these wonderful people. And it's just such a delight. Um, so, Thanks to all of you out there listening. Yeah. Heck yeah. All right. So Slate Plus, we got a topic for you today. Topic is, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a game. It's a, it's a, it's a hypothetical. It's an intellectual exercise. So you have to, you must. It's, a, it's sort of reimagining American government, and and the the rules are you must keep two and only two of the following and reconstitute the others with a national convention. You do not know what the outcome of that national convention is going to be. So which of the following two things do you keep and why? So the seven things of which you're going to keep two are states as we have them and the idea of sort of the federal system of divided government, state and federal government. That's number one. Number two, the Constitution. Number three, the Supreme Court. Number four, the presidency. Number five, the House of Representatives. Number six, the Senate. Number seven, the Electoral College. And yes, we know a lot of these are contingent on each other. So this is because it's a hypothetical. You, if you keep the presidency without the Constitution, you're like, well, what powers does the president have that aren't enumerated in Article Don't Two? Don't make blah, fun. Blah, blah, blah. I had that whole conversation in okay. my head last night without making fun, yes. being like, yes. oh, this is tricky. I'm, Don't be mean. So it's I'm gonna we're gonna I'm gonna allow a certain amount of latitude. Um, but I think the general idea is the two things you're keeping, you have to imagine, are going to are going to be maintained in more or less the form, more or less the form that they have now, with the idea that yes, perhaps they're edited or modified by things that are happening around them. Can um, I say the so, obvious things that we want to get that, rid of? I think we could all agree that we're going to get rid of the Senate and the Electoral College immediately. Can no, no, I think. Oh no, oh, I, no, no. All right, go ahead. <laughs> I'm not. Yeah, I mean the Electoral College. For yeah, sure. I was going to yes. say. The Electoral we, College, okay. yes. Goodbye, right. so Electoral College. Electoral College is gone. You're going to defend the Senate? GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today.